Good morning, Woodland Hills. Good morning. You can't justify faith. I like that guy, uh, Philosopher's Corner. He's clever. He's quick. And he's not necessarily, the views he's giving there are not necessarily his own. But when he says you can't justify faith, I, that, is just, that is just poppycock. Uh, anytime you go beyond evidence, um, you are, you're exercising faith, whether it's getting on a plane or driving in a car. And you always justify it. It, it, it makes sense to do it. You've got to go beyond reason, but you shouldn't go against it. I'll say more about that in a second. Uh, so the series is called A Physicist and a Priest Walk Into a Bar, and we're inviting people to complete the joke. Um, and, and so when I got one that I think is sharing worthy, I'll, I'll read it. So here's, here's one that came in. Uh, and and some, of, some of the jokes, and by the way, keep on saying the jokes. They're very clever. Some of them, some of them less so. But uh, <laughs> okay, so some of them you have to know a little bit of science. A neutrino is a super, super tiny particle. It's so small. It's a subatomic particle. It's so small, it can go through seven light years of solid steel and never collide with another particle. So it's, okay, so here's the joke. A physicist and a priest walk into a bar, and after a drink, the physicist confides to the priest, Father, I have a neutrino that rarely, uh, rarely reacts with normal matter. The father says, the priest says, worry not, my son. Your neutrino just needs more mass. But, but the neutrino saw right through that plan. <laughs> That's pretty clever. I mean, it's pretty clever. I think it's pretty good. <laughs> okay. See, this, this idea that was conveyed in this video is very widespread. People think that you just decide to believe in God. Why? Well, it's just faith because you want to. Maybe it gives you some consolation about life after death or whatever. But the assumption is that there's no reasons for it, no evidence for it. So you might as well believe in the spaghetti monster or this cosmic teapot. That'd be a fun religion. You're a great big teapot. Yes, you are. You are God way up far. So, but you could, without evidence and without reasons, without evidence, then all beliefs are, 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 are equal. It, it's, uh, I completely agree with this person's point that you should believe things because there's compelling evidence for it. Uh, don't believe in a cosmic teapot unless you've got good reasons for, belie for, for, for believing that. And don't believe in God if you don't have compelling reasons for believing in God. And don't believe in Jesus if you don't have compelling reasons for believing in Jesus. Um, I happen to think, however, that we have got very compelling reasons to believe in God and to believe in Jesus. And so this idea, see, this is where this assumption comes from, that if, if, uh, if you're a smart person and you're sticking with evidence, well, then it, it, you're scientific. But if you're a person of faith, well, then you're not sticking with evidence. Uh, you're, you're, it's irrational. And, and, and so they, they think there's this fight between science and faith. And this whole series is a way of saying poppycock on that, boulder dash. It's... it's uh, we think that you should, God wants us to be thinking about things. We saw that last week. God created us with minds because he's a rational, intelligent God. So he creates us as rational, intelligent people. And he expects us to use our brain. In fact, he expects us to worship God with our brain by thinking. And so we ought to have reasons for what we believe. Why do you hold this as opposed to that? And whatever you believe, whatever you believe, you're going to have to go beyond evidence. But that doesn't mean you go against the evidence. Uh, if we give up on that, then he's right. We, it's... If you believe in God without evidence or believe in Jesus without evidence, you might as well believe in, in, in this religion or that authority or, or somebody tells you that God says to drive a plane into a skyscraper, you might believe that. If we give up on the reason, well, then everything's pandemonium and chaos and we can't know truth at all. It's not, excuse me, it's, not, it's not enough to say you can't disprove something. Oh, you can't prove there is no God, so I'm justified believing it. But see, you can apply that to anything. You can't disprove that the universe didn't just double in size a second ago. It just happened again. Did you see that? 
You probably didn't notice it because everything doubled, so there's nothing to measure it against, but you can't just prove that it didn't just double. Oh, it just tripled, just right there. Did you see that? So it's, it's, or you can't just prove that there's not a three-headed unicorn made of monster cheese on the far side of the moon hiding under a rock to get away from the spaghetti monster. You can't just prove that. But that doesn't mean you should be believing it. There should be reasons for what you believe. So this morning, um, I'm going to be talking about science and the God question. And I'm going to give two arguments that I think support believing in God. They're not my primary reasons for believing in God, but, but the, the two arguments that intersect with science. And since this is a, a, a lecture on, on, or a lecture, a series on, on science and faith, we thought it'd be good to, to share those. There's two aspects of modern science that I think support faith in God. Both of these aspects reflect the truth that is proclaimed in Psalms 19, where the, the, the author says this, the heavens are telling the glory of God, and the firmament, the skies, proclaim his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech, always is pouring forth speech. Night to night declares knowledge. Now there is no speech, nor other words. Their voice is not heard, yet their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. What the author is saying here, is that if you're listening, if you're open to it, the heavens are saying something. They're telling us something. They're pouring forth knowledge continually, relentlessly. They're not doing it with words that you can hear or speech that, that enters into your physical ear, but there's knowledge there. The, the assumption is that there's an intelligence behind this, the order of things. The heavens point to an intelligence. And I think there's aspects of contemporary science that are agreeing with that. The first aspect of science that I would uh, like to talk about is, has to do with the Big Bang. Probably most of you know what the Big Bang Theory is. Uh, I'll illustrate it here. Yes, here's my nifty. Here's a balloon. And the balloon used to have dots on it. I blew a balloon up and then with the magic marker put dots on it to represent stars. But I collapsed the balloon before the stars had a chance to get solid. And so now there's just a bunch of smudges on it. So let, let, let the smudges represent nebulae uh, and, 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 and the dots, uh, planets and, and stars. And so the universe looks like this. getting bigger and bigger. It's expanding. And, and all the dots that used to be on here uh, that never did dry, maybe it's not a good idea to put magic marker on a balloon to start with, I'm thinking. But if, if you were a dot on this, you'd be, you'd be getting farther and farther from all the other dots. And notice that as this thing expands, it's not that the dots are moving away from each other, it's that the space that they're on is getting bigger. It's expanding. And that's what Big Bang Theory is stating, that space itself is expanding, and since space itself is expanding, everything that's in that space, on that space, is expanding as well. And it looks like everything's moving away from, from everything else. So you, you run the movie backwards far enough to about 13.7 billion years, and they come up with a theory that once upon a time, all the matter of the universe was in a super, super condensed dot. And then it exploded, and that's why right now we're in the midst of this explosion, and everything's going away from everything else. When I was first a Christian, we used to mock this theory. Uh, because... I bet some of you were taught this. We assumed, or we were taught, I don't know where it came up with it, but we thought this was just one more godless attempt of atheistic scientists to try to posit a theory so they won't have to appeal to God. So as a way of running away from God, they, they come up with this theory. Oh, we'll see. They all start with a big bang. Yeah, it's all going away from each other. Yeah, yeah. Actually, the opposite is true. The big bang represents how scientists are willing, even if reluctantly at first, but they're willing to follow the evidence wherever it leads because no one in the scientific community wanted there to be a Big Bang. Uh, they only went there because the evidence suggested it. They didn't want a Big Bang. They didn't want the universe to begin. 
Because if the universe starts at a point in time, or actually they say time starts with the Big Bang, but if there's a beginning to the universe, that means the universe is not self-explanatory. If it began, now you've got to ask the question, well, how did it begin? What preceded that? It looks like you're going to have to appeal to some transcendent explanation to account for how this thing exploded. So it's like this. Um, you, you can't get something from nothing. You'll surely agree with that, right? You can't. There's nothing and all of a sudden there's something, right? So you can't get that, right? Right. And it seems like there is something because I'm talking to you right now. So there is something and you can't get something from nothing. So if there is something and apparently there is, then there must have always been something because you can't get something from nothing. So something, if there's anything, and apparently there is because I'm talking to you, if there's anything, then there must have always been something. And so something must be uncreated. Something must be eternal. Something must always have been. It must be in the nature of something that has always been there and, and, and it will never go out of existence. If you ever had nothing, you'd still have nothing because you can't get something from nothing. So if there's an eternal something if there is any something. And that eternal something has to account for the temporal something. The eternal something is what explains the, the, the non-eternal something, the created something. And now it looks like this universe is not that eternal something. The scientists always hoped it was. It's just a steady state universe. It just is basically the same forever and ever and ever. And now it turns out, now it turns out the thing began. So they were, people resisted this idea strongly. But the evidence just pointed in, 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 in this direction. So it, um, it started in 1913 when Vesto Steifer accidentally discovered that uh, uh, all the galaxies out there demonstrate this Doppler effect or this redshift, which indicates that they're moving away from us. And he didn't think about the universe expanding at this point. He thought that just for some reason our, our, our galaxy was moving away from the other galaxies. But it was the first piece of evidence that, that there was a Big Bang. Everything's moving away from each other. It's not in a steady state like they thought it was. Then in 1916, Einstein comes up with this theory of relativity. And he shops that theory around, and one of the people that read it is this guy on the left, De Witter. And um, De Witter. And he notices that Einstein's equations, for Einstein's equations to work, the universe has to be expanding. Einstein's theory predicts an expanding universe. Now, Einstein hated this idea. It was repugnant to him. Because he thought that if, if the universe began, well, that's, you have to appeal to a god to explain that. And he, he said, we can't go there. So he resisted the idea that the universe expands, even though his own theory predicted that the universe expands. De Witter said, no, I, I, listen, your theory's true. It was confirmed in 1919 by Sir Eddington. And, and if the theory's true, then the universe has to be expanding because your, your theory requires that. Einstein fought it to the end of his life. Uh, at the very end, he finally gave up and he conceded that the universe had a beginning. But his whole career, he fought it. De Witter, however, promoted it. And so the idea of the open universe became known as De Witter's universe. Not Einstein's universe. He was a opponent of the universe that he himself predicted. Then came along Edwin Hubble in the 1930s. And with a newly powered uh, telescope, he looked further into space. And he discovered not only is everything moving away from each other, but the farther out you look, the faster things are moving. So it looks like the acceleration rate is, 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 is speeding up. Now that was a total bummer. Because throughout the 20s, as they're dealing with the evidence of the Big Bang, and this continued throughout the 30s as well, but they hoped there's only one way to salvage a, an eternal universe if you're going to have this Big Bang explosion. And that is, if, if, if there's an explosion, but there's enough mass in the universe to have enough gravity to slowly slow down the rate of expansion, and then they have it start to retract. So it looked like this here. 
Big Bang, it's exploding. You get like 20, 30, maybe even 40 billion years of, of energy, but it, it eventually runs out. So it starts to then recede. It starts to recede. So it slowly is a deflate. In science, this is what's known as a uh, HPFU universe. And it's, as it's, it stands for, for a high-pitched flatulent universe. That's what they thought. Unfortunately, unfortunately, so the idea was that it, it, would, it would contract and then there would come a, what they call the big crunch, and all the matter would again become super condensed, and, and then the pressure of that would eventually explode it again, and it would retract and then slow down. And then, so you'd have a, an accordion universe. It'd be doing this throughout eternity. Big bang after big bang. It doesn't work, though, because A, this stuff is speeding up, not slowing down. That's why they had to invent this thing called dark matter. It's a repulsive force and whatever. But it's, it's not, it's not going to slow down. We also know that now there's far too little matter in the universe to ever cause it to slow down. You don't, we, there's not enough gravity. Um, and the, uh, the other thing is that this oscillating universe idea, it violates the second law of thermodynamics, which is one of the most fundamental foundational laws of all physics. Second law of thermodynamics says that everything tends towards randomness. Uh, usable energy tends to get used up. You can't recycle energy with 100% efficiency. It's always lost. Everything tends towards entropy. And so, according to the second law of thermodynamics, if there was an oscillating universe, the second explosion, the second Big Bang, would be weaker than the first one because there's a loss of energy. And the third would be weaker than the second, and the 400th weaker than, than all the previous ones. And so, if the universe was oscillating, we would have run out of energy by now because something's got to be eternal. And so if this has been going on for eternity, we would have lost all the energy in the universe an eternity ago. So the oscillating universe, bottom line is there's one shot at this. This is a one-shot deal. This Big Bang is not going to be reversed. It's going in one direction. Everything was, was, was pointing to that. The final indication came from uh, Ammo Penzies and Robert Wilson in 1965. As they, uh, with even more powerful telescopes and satellite dishes, they found that wherever they looked out, uh, in, in whatever direction in the universe, they found this background radiation. Shh, this buzz, like your television screen when it's on a channel without a station. And that's exactly what the Big Bang Theory predicts. There would be this explosion, and the, the, the radiation of that explosion at the outer perimeters would still be there. It would be a residual noise, if you will, the echo of the Big Bang. And that convinced everybody. So now, it's not even disputed. This is a done deal. All the, the facts are in. And uh, it looks like the universe began 13.7 billion years ago. They say it will continue for roughly another 20, maybe 25 billion years. Uh, but at that point, the second law of thermodynamics is going to start gobbling up everything. Because the usable energy in the uni universe is running out. We'll stop making new stars. The old stars are going to burn out. And in 25 billion years or so, what will be left is nothingness, virtual nothingness, because the only reason there's anything is energy, and all energy will be used up, so it'll be a graveyard of nothing. Eternal silence, eternal nothingness. And so, and there won't even be anyone around to remember that once upon a time, the universe played a sick joke on itself by creating people who thought that something mattered. <laughs> Silly universe. It was a sick joke. The whole thing is full of passion and fury signifying nothing. So, so, so the idea here is that there's a, something must be eternal. And they say it's this little speck of dust, this little super condensed matter. It's going along, going along, going along through eternity, always has been, and all of a sudden it explodes. We have 20, 40 billion years of stuff happening, like human beings and love and passion and all that. But then it all dies, 
and we come into an absolute nothingness. So reality as we know it is simply a little, a little flatulation between two eternal nothingnesses. And I just find that to be profoundly, profoundly unsatisfying. Um, when I was at the U of M, I, I, we had, had this class in astronomy, and I was... What? Oh, did I spill? Oh, yeah. Oh, well. Some of it got my mouth. That's all that matters. So here's the thing. The, 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 uh, it was an astronomy class, and um, we were looking at the moons of Jupiter uh, up on this building, and the uh, uh, professor starts to pontificate, first of all, about this comet that he discovered the previous year, and he's famous for it, and went on and on and on about that. Uh, and then he started talking about the Big Bang and how we got from the Big Bang to us, and it was kind of interesting. And then at the end of it, he said, are there any questions? And I had a question, but it seemed so obvious that I thought, surely I missed something. Uh, and and I, I didn't want to ask it because I thought maybe I'll look stupid. But no one else was asking a question. So I raised my hand. Professor Cole is on me, and I said, okay, I'm just wondering, uh, where'd that super condensed speck of dust come from? And the professor kind of giggled, and the class kind of giggled, and I thought, what's funny about that? It seems like a very reasonable question. Tell me you didn't have that question. And then I said, and why did it blow up when it blew up? What caused it to explode? And then the professor says, hey, look, at, at some point, as he's giggling here, he goes, at some point, you gotta stop asking questions. It's like, what? This is science, right? Science proceeds by asking questions on the assumption that there's always an answer to the question. That the universe is rational, which is quite a big assumption, by the way. But yeah, you assume that. Don't tell me that, that you got to stop asking questions. And then he explained to me, he goes, well, see, the Big Bang is a point of singularity. First time I ever heard that word. And because it's a singularity, it means that time and space were created with the Big Bang. So there was no when and there was no where prior to the Big Bang. So you can't ask, how did it get there, or what caused it to blow up? It's a singularity. Now, so far as I could tell, and I'll say this to this day, the word singularity, it simply means stop asking questions, but a little, a little more fancy. <laughs> no, it's a singularity, you see. You can ask questions about that. You totally can ask questions about that. Like, those people who used to believe in an oscillating universe, or wanted to believe in an oscillating universe, there was something that happened before the Big Bang, namely another Big Bang. Okay, so you can ask the question, I want to know what is the answer to this? And uh, if, if, see, at this point, you get, to, you get to the limits of science. And that's okay. Science always operates with the assumption that there's a natural cause for every natural thing. Uh, here you get to the point where you, you, you don't have any more answers. But just say here, science can't go any further. Don't say, don't ask any more questions. It's rational to ask this question. If for all eternity, something's got to be eternal. If it, you can't get something from nothing, there is something, there must have always been something. What, but is that something? Oh, a little speck of dust. It's super condensed. And it goes along for all eternity. It's always been this way. And then it explodes. Well, you've got to ask, what caused it to explode? If it wasn't eternally exploding, and yet it's eternal, something changed. You see what I'm saying? And it must be something outside that speck of dust. Now, science can't go there, but we can. And I think we must. What brought about this, and why did it explode when it exploded, and why did it create the people that it created? And this is why, it, it, when the idea was first proposed, everyone was saying it was preposterous. It's absurd. It's crazy. Uh, Sir Eddington, who was the first one to confirm Einstein's theory of relativity, which predicts the expansion of the universe, he, he confirmed it in 1919. He says, the notion of a beginning is repugnant to me. I simply do not believe that the present order of things started off with a bang. The expanding universe is preposterous, incredible. It leaves me cold. I agree, totally. 
And yet, there it is. And he finally came to accept it. But it shows you how much they, they, they despise this. This uh, uh, German chemist named Walter Nurst. Uh, he says, to deny the infinite duration of time would be to betray the very foundations of science. Science operates on the assumption that the universe is self-explanatory, which means it must have always been. If there's anything, there must have always been something. They want to say the universe, which means time, sequence, must be eternal. The Big Bang says, nope, it started at a particular point in time. They didn't want to accept that. Uh, Robert Jastrow wrote a book called the God and the Astronomers. It's a really interesting book. It explores just how they discovered this, that, that the universe had a beginning and how psychologically and emotionally traumatic this has been for the scientific community to come to grips with. And then he, he, he ends this book, and he himself is an astronomer and a believer. He ends the book by saying this, last, last sentence. For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. <laughs> That's the thing, folks. Uh, science can take us to this point. Uh, but it is a bad dream because they thought there'd always be a reason. There'd always be an explanation. There'd always be the universe would be self-explanatory. You peel it back. You peel back all this ignorance. You get all your explanations. Then you finally get back to the beginning of time. And now it's like, at some point, you got to stop asking questions. That's a bad dream. Uh, science has hit its limits here. Now, theologians have always been saying that the universe is not self-explanatory. The universe needs a cause outside of itself, a transcendence cause. And there, it, it points to a God. And this is where the science has, has brought us. It points beyond itself. Science can't go there. Its methodology prevents it. But we can go there, and I think we must go there. Uh, there's no reason to think that the only things that are real are the things that science can capture. There's a lot more reality than that. And so it makes sense to say, since the universe isn't self, something's got to be eternal. And what is eternal has got to be the explanation for what's not eternal. The universe is not eternal. And so whatever else you want to say about what is eternal, she is the explanation for why there is this world. I rest my case. All right. So the Big Bang is not a challenge to faith in God. It strongly supports faith in God. Now, you may say, well, it, 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 it wreaks havoc with Genesis 1. And David Morrow will answer that question in about two weeks. But I'm just saying that, considered in and of itself, it, it, uh, is, uh, it, it doesn't prove that there's a God, but it certainly points in that direction. Now, if it was surprising to find out that the universe had a beginning, and it was, it was even more surprising to find out, as we have in the last 70 years, that this one-shot universe seems to be finely tuned to the production of solid things and to life. That, 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 that there's a, well, I'll put it like this. And by the way, I, I, I shared this a year ago, so I'm going to make a brief here, also because I only have 15 minutes left. But uh, this is the kind of thing that you need to review once in a while because it's not that easy to get. And by the way, I should tell you ahead of time, uh, although it's not any longer ahead of time, it's in the middle of the sermon, but you, you get your thinking caps on because this is going to require some brain power, even if you have had it before. So here's the deal. Here's the metal. Can you see it? And here's two magnets. Now, if you put two magnets of equal power by this, this uh, piece of metal at the exact same distance, the thing will stay stationary because the, the pull is canceling out each other. But if one gets too close, boom, the metal makes a decision and goes towards, towards one of them. So the stability collapses if the, if the uh, magnets are not of um, equal power and or of uh, the equal distance from the, the, the metal. Now, what we know in the last 70, 80 years of science is that all of reality is structured just like this. What we call stable things, whether it's galaxies or stars, clouds, people, mice, frogs, orangutans, everything is, is held together by forces keeping it solid. There's, there's, a, there's a precise force, a balancing of forces that allows stability to, to exist. 
If it wasn't for these forces, the universe would have, uh, would have produced what would be the equivalent of watching the TV on a, on a station that doesn't have a channel, or a channel that doesn't have a station. It'd be this, it'd be a random noise. The reason you have order in the universe at all is because there's forces that balance it just right. But notice, they have to be exactly right. If one is more powerful than the other, all bets are off. It's, uh, it collapses. And there's an infinity of ways of being wrong. There's one way of being right. If you don't get the right way, the exact right distance, the exact right power, the exact ratio, then the thing collapses. All of reality is based like that. But it's not that we have two fundamental forces pulling on us. They say that there are 47 that we know of right now. There could be more. 47 forces, what they call cosmic constants. So imagine putting in other magnets here in this equation. And since we don't have an aerial view, I'll draw it for you since I'm such a great artist. So here we have a piece of metal. I'll just go like this. That's a piece of metal. So it will stay stable if you have two uh, uh, magnets pulling at it with equal strength and with an equal distance. Now, one magnet could be stronger than the other, but it has to be farther removed. So the ratio has to be exactly right. But now add in other magnets. Like these are all magnets. Now, to keep this thing stable, all of this has to be exactly balanced, which means that the relationship between each of these, see, these are going to be pulling on each other as well. And so you have all these 47 of these pulling at reality, and that is what creates order. Everything is this delicate, delicate, delicate balance. And it's held in place only because of that. And what you need to know is that science can give no reason why the cosmic magnets are the size they are, and have the ratios that they have. It looks like it's all by chance. It has to do with what, how, how things cooled in the first nanosecond of the Big Bang. And they hit upon these ratios, and they happen to be just right for the production of things like planets and stars and galaxies and life to form. If anything was different, well, we wouldn't be here to talk about it. So, for example, I'll give three examples of these cosmic constants. The first is... What's the first one? It's the ratio of electromagnetic force constant to the gravitational force constant. And don't worry about understanding what these are. The ratio is what's important. If you alter that by 10 to the 40, 1 in 10 to the 40th power, stars wouldn't be able to produce uh, elements beyond helium. There'd be no carbon, oxygen, nitrogen, the other chemicals that are required for life. 1 in 10 to the 40th power. We can't get our brains around this kind of a number. Uh, it looks like a small number. Oh, 10 to 40, that's not big. But that's 10 times 10 times 10, 40 times, which is huge. One author put it like this. If you were to uh, fill up the continental United States with dimes, every square inch of the continental United States has dimes on it, and then stack each one of those dimes up to the moon, which on average is 239,000 miles from us. Okay, so you got a lot of dimes. Whole U.S. stacked to the moon. Now multiply that by a billion, and you've got roughly 10 to the 40th power number of dimes. That's a, that's a lot of dimes. And what this is saying is, uh, if one of those dimes was different, one of all those dimes, United States up to the moon, times a billion, if, if you took away one or added one, life as we know it would not have been able to form. And this is just one cosmic constant. We've got 47 cosmic constants, and all of them have about that same probability of happening by chance. The odds of this happening by chance are 1 in 10 to the 40th power. And that's almost infinitesimally small, which means it's, it's virtually improbable. I mean, it, impossible. Here's the thing. The more improbable any form of order is, the less plausible it is to try to explain it by appealing to chance. 
right? So if you go to Mystic Lake Casino, for example, I'm not saying you should go to Mystic Lake Casino, but if you do go and you win a lot of money, remember to support your church. So <laughs> you go there and uh, just got to say it like that. And, and, uh, and, and, and so you, you go up there to play crafts. Now, here's the thing. I use this analogy, and I, 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 I don't know anything about crafts or about gambling or about casinos, and I thought snake eyes were good things. Someone told me in the last, uh, uh, the last service that snake eyes are bad when you're playing craps. I, but I always saw these movies where they say, come on, snake eyes. So we're going to pretend like snake eyes are good, all right? Just for the, whether it's craps or, there must be some game in which they're good. So we'll say craps version two in which snake eyes are good. So if you're playing craps version two in which snake eyes are good, if you roll snake eyes once, and that's, by the way, with, I guess they call it a pip, a pip on a dice, comes up one. There's one pip on the dice. The odds of rolling two ones are one in 36. Because there's one in six chance for one dice, one in six chance for the other one. So you multiply the, 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 the bottoms and you get 36. One in 36. So they'll say, oh, that was good luck. That could happen. You know, if you play enough craps, version two, you'll come up with, you know, if you play 36 games, you're going to get one roll, right, right? Now, if you roll it twice, they'll think you're very, very lucky. Because the odds of that happening, if you roll two consecutive snake eyes, the odds of that happening are one in 1,296. But it could happen. It could happen. You know, if you play 1,296 games, you're going to get that once. But if you roll a third time, in fact, even after the second time, people will cheer for you, but the house is going to be looking at you. Their eyes are on you. Because they're already suspecting that maybe this, this isn't chance. The more improbable the order, the less compelling appeal to chances. So you roll three in a row or four in a row or six in a row, they're going to kick your butt out of there. Because <laughs> yeah, the odds of rolling six consecutive snake eyes in a row are, here it is, 1 in 2,176,782,336. And that's virtually impossible. You don't get, no one gets that lucky. So they'll suspect the dice are loaded, but even if they can't prove it, maybe you've got some kind of magnet, some, some magnets around, or, or maybe it's telepathy or something, I don't know. But intelligence is going on here. There's a plan here. This is not a coincidence. This is not chance. It's too, the order is too improbable. Appealing to chance loses credibility. So if that is true of six consecutive snake eyes, what is the probability of this? Uh, at what point are we going to begin to think, hey, maybe there's an intelligence behind here? In fact, think about it like this. Let's make it really simple. Let's say that the odds of any cosmic constant coming into being was not 1 in 10 to the 40th power, coming in by chance. It wasn't 1 in 10 to the 40th power. Let's make it really simple. Let's say it's 1 in 6. And so each one of these is 1 in 6. So what, 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 even keeping it that small, what are, what, what's the probability of this happening by chance? So let's, let's go to the, the omniscient Siri. Siri, what is 6 to the 47th power? 6 raised to the 47th power is 374204295125405315187297913136 That's a 1 in 6 chance. If all these 47 constants have a 1 in 6 chance of getting it right, that 1 in that number is the odds of all these happening together. Now Make it 1 in 60, you've got to multiply that by 10. Make it 1 in 600, you've got to multiply that by 100. Make it 1 in 6,000, you've got to multiply that by 1,000. You're not even getting close to 1 in 10 to the 40th power. You could roll a trillion snake eyes in a row, and you're only about halfway there. Okay, so this is astronomically improbable if done by chance. At what point do you start to think, maybe, maybe there's more than chance going on, or maybe there's a mind going on here. Now, here's the thing. Um, 
You can know the strength of any theory by how extreme people are willing to go to avoid its conclusion. And this is another confirming point about this whole Big Bang cosmic constants argument here. Because people are willing to go to extreme lengths to, to, to get around this conclusion. And notice this. These numbers are not cooked up. Everyone agrees on these numbers, on these probabilities. And so the, the trouble is how, how to explain it. One easy way is to say, well, there's a mind going on here. There's an intelligence that's designed it. The system is rigged. At what point... How can you deny the system is rigged when the odds of it happening by chance are so small? So the only way to get around this is to deny that it's a one-shot deal, even though all the evidence suggests it's a one-shot deal. And so some have proposed that maybe there are. See, if you have 10 to the... If you added up all these numbers together here, Roger Penrose, this is a guy who worked with Stephen Hawking on his, his whole theory of time and stuff, and he calculated that the odds of all these cosmic constants happening by chance with their, their true ratio numbers, is 1 in 10 to the 154th power. It, 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 and we, we just, you might as well say infinite at that point. So at what point do you think maybe it is rigged? The only way to get around it is, is, is to say that, you know what, there have been 10 to the 154th power number of Big Bangs. This has happened trillions of times, and we happen to be in the lucky one. Yeah, it, it's, it's, it's very remote, very remote, but... We happen to be in the lucky one, because if we weren't in the lucky one, we wouldn't be around to notice that we're not in the lucky one. There's only one way of getting this right, and we happen to be in the one that got it right, which is exactly what you'd expect. Because otherwise, you'd have just, you'd have a television, a TV on a station without, or on a channel without a station. It'd be just sheer randomness. Or maybe some have proposed that the universe is every, every Planck unit is, is dividing into all possibilities. Uh, this was first proposed in, 19, in the 1950s. Uh, by a guy named Wheeler. It's called multiverse theory. And he's basically saying that uh, he's trying to solve a problem of quantum indeterminacy. And quantum indeterminacy is only a problem if you're a determinist. <laughs> so I don't have a problem with this to start with. But he wants to solve this problem. And so he posits that every possibility is actually realized every second, every nanosecond uh, of the universe. It's splitting in all these dimensions. And when it was first proposed, everyone thought it was kind of cuckoo. Uh, but now it's catching on because it's the only alternative to thinking that there's an intelligence behind this thing. It's just, in fact, it's getting in movies now. I, I, there's a show out there, Sean and I watched it called Man of the High Tower. Anyone here seen that, Man of the High Tower? It's, it's a pretty good show. Nazis. But it deals with... Spoiler alert. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Because you actually don't learn that it's a multiverse story until you... Because you're left wondering. And I just ruined it for all you guys. Sorry about that. Sorry. But it's still good to watch, even if you know where it's going. So, so it's, it's catching on a lot now. But here's the thing, here's the thing. Um, these, the, the, it's getting very elaborate. They're, they're positing different theories, different dimensions, uh, and, and string holes and wormholes that connect them to the two, and it's getting very elaborate. You've just got to know that all, all the, they have 13 dimensions, some say 17 dimensions. All of those things are simply theoretical constructs. They're, they're mathematically self-consistent ways of, of describing the way the world could be. What could be? It's, it's possible. But the question is not, is it possible? Could the world be like this? The question is, is, is the world like this? And to decide that this map actually describes our world, you need evidence. You need compelling evidence. And there is no evidence for this. All of this is spun out to solve a problem of quantum indeterminacy and to escape this conclusion that this happened by chance. Um, or to, to, to escape the conclusion that, that didn't happen by chance, that it was by intelligent design. But how is that really different from believing in a cosmic teapot? Yeah, I can't disprove this, but, but I got no reason to think it's true. 
Uh, and it, it makes you feel more comfortable to believe that, that it happened by chance, that there's not an intelligent design. But how's that different from people thinking, I feel more comfortable believing in a cosmic teapot? You need evidence. You need argumentation. And all the evidence suggests that this is a one-shot deal. It started 13.7 billion years ago. It's going to die out in 25 billion years if the Lord doesn't return, and he will return before then. Um, but it doesn't explain itself. And so finely tuned. You, you know, what, what I find is this, is that as I was working on the sermon this week, I look around at everything, and everything has got a, a 1 in 10 to the 154th power chance of existing. If anything had been at all different, one dime removed from one of these cosmic constants that go up to the moon times a billion, this wouldn't be here. Everything is a miracle. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? Like the fact that I exist is a miracle, that you exist, that there's solid things, that this isn't just a scrambling TV screen without a station. It's a miracle. There's a miraculous quality to everything, which is why with the psalmist, when he says the heavens declare the glory of God, I, as, as far as I can see, this is just proving that point. This glorifies God. This, this is God's wisdom. It screams out knowledge and intelligence. Uh, it, it, it's telling a story. This doesn't happen by chance. This is design, folks. And what we're seeing here is the working of the divine mind, producing the improbable. Amen. And, and, and so if there's a mind behind this whole thing, um, you got to ask the question, well, why, would, why would God go through all the trouble? Something's got to be eternal. If you ask, well, where did God come from? Well, you, there, at, at some point, you have, to, you have to admit there's something that didn't come from anything. Because if, if there ever there was nothing, there would still be nothing. There must have always been something. And so, so um, if you ask, why, why would God go through the trouble of holding all these cosmic constants just in place? There must, something important must be going on. And here's where the Bible fills in the picture. Uh, this God, who creates this very improbable universe, manifesting his wisdom and God's power, this God is love. And love is the one thing that is eternal and that will win in the end. That goes on forever and ever. And it's love that undergirds all of this. Amen? It, it's, it's love that props us up. It loves that explains it all. They say in... Oh, I got to quit. Shoot. All right. Um, I, I, I want to end by, with, with, with this reading. Um, just to help us open our eyes to the wonder and the miracle of the reality that we're a part of. It, don't ever get used to this, folks. This is an incredible, incredible, mind-boggling miracle. And one of the ways you worship God is with your mind, by just letting your mind grasp this and, and, and glorify God with it. So uh, here's a reading, and uh, we just stand, and uh, before we read this, I want to say, uh, if you're here to that, this morning and have any need that could use prayer, as long as it doesn't involve the Super Bowl, uh, come up here and pray with these folks. <laughs> We don't pray for teams to win. That's just, that's, um, well, whatever the need is, I encourage you to come up here and get prayer. And if you're here this morning and you're not a surrendered follower of Jesus, but maybe something I said has he's piqued your interest, I encourage you to come up here and talk to these folks about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And they'd love to explain this to you. Let's read this as a prayer, right? Let's read this as a, a prayer. I'll read the light part. You read the, the dark part. I'm simply taking Psalm 19 and I'm, we're, we're praying it back to God. It's a traditional form of uh, Lectio Divina. And so... The heavens are telling the glory of God, and the firmament proclaims his handiwork. You, glory, celebrate that handy. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night declares knowledge. We listen for that speech. Amen. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard, yet their voice goes out through all the earth, and the words to the end of the world Teach us to hear your wordless speech, to behold your matchless wisdom, and to never take for granted the wonder of your magnificent creation. You guys are a miracle. Go out and tell other people they're a miracle. Proclaim the glory of God. See you next week. <laughs>